Okay, welcome back to What Is and What Could Be with Michael Clark Architect. As always, I really do appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen into this podcast series where we talk through the experience of collaborating with architects and realizing architectural projects. We talk through the creative thinking behind the design of spaces and places. And today we have Another guest, we have Nicole Lennon from Planic. Planic is a town planning consultancy firm and Nicole is director and founder of Planic. Now, in the previous episode, I spoke about the concept of a development application. What is a development application? And more importantly for this episode, who is assessing it? What's the risk of them assessing it and coming back to say it's not acceptable? Because for the first time in the evolution of the project, we have a team assessing the design with a different criteria to what our team, that is the design team, has to date. Our criteria has been creative response to client's vision. The assessment team have a different focus. And there's a risk that they say something's not acceptable, something doesn't align with their criteria as what constitutes a good design, a good response to site, a good result for the public domain. Nicole is trained the same way that that assessment team is trained, that is in town planning. In fact, Nicole has also worked for local government assessing applications several local government authorities, several councils, has worked at state government, worked overseas in London before returning to Australia in 2013 to start Planic, her own company. We're going to talk to Nicole about town planning, what's involved in town planning training at university, Nicole's experience in being trained as a town planner, which I found really interesting. We're also going to talk about where development application comes from, where the concept comes from. And then we're also going to get some live insights from Nicole as to what issues we're facing as of August 2022 in regards to town planning applications. Most notably, what's happening with councils, some of the issues and pressures council are facing given what's happening generally in August 2022. It's a great interview. I really appreciated Nicole's time. I enjoyed the experience. I hope you do too. Let's get into it. You're listening to What Is and What Could Be with Michael Clark, architect. Today, talking to Nicole Lennon, town planner from Planic. Is that how I say it, Nicole? Planic or Planic? Planic, yeah. Planic. Just I've got... plan and Nick. That's my shortened version of my name when I'm lazy. Oh, nice. All right. Well, thank you for joining us, Nicole. Nicole is founder and director of Planic. And uh, just for connection here, I thought I'd make a note that Nicole and I worked on one project and I look forward to that happening again soon. And it's a real benefit to have someone like Nicole, who's trained in town planning, has worked for council. That's right, Nicole. Yeah, one point. Yes. Yeah. So you really have insights that we wouldn't otherwise be able to get. And you're always able to 
yeah, add value to the process of lodging a DA, developing a DA, thinking about controls and the like. And I'm interested to do a bit of a dive into development applications, Nicole, preparing one, uh, the process, real high level discussions. We're not here going to say, oh, Nicole, I've just got a friend around the corner that wants to add a first floor addition in Wallara. Uh, what can they do? We're not going to talk to that level of specifics. This is real high level open discussions. But let's just circle all the way back, Nicole, because I'm a big fan of um, an origin story. So can you talk a little bit about the Nicole Lennon leading up to Planic backstory, like the training as a town planner and, and get us to a point where you're at now with Planic? Sure. Um, I found it quite interesting when I ventured into town planning in terms of the university course no one knew what a town planner was and I certainly didn't I just came came across um, in a part-time job when I was still at school trying to make a decision about what I was going to do with my life um, a fellow who had been doing um, architecture I think and had moved across to town planning and he he was really enjoying the course at that time and I asked him a few questions about the course and it was about environment, build environment, people, um, you know, climate, um, all, all sorts of things like that. And I thought, you know, I'm quite interested in that sort of broad um, knowledge base rather than be like an expert on one particular thing. I decided to be a planner because um, it might sound silly, but I didn't want to go to university and come out with a degree and then have to make more decisions about what I was going to do or which direction I was going to take. I just have this piece of paper that, um, you know, wasn't a ticket to a um, career. So I was quite happy to choose town planning um, because when I came out at the end of five years, it was a five-year degree, four years at university and right in the middle, they uh, send you out for a year's valuable work experience. Um, Working for council? For council? Uh, you, you could choose wherever you worked. I actually worked for a private consultancy during that year. Um, so that was, that was interesting. And um, at the end of all that, you have a bachelor's degree of town planning and, and you just go out into the workforce as a town planner. So that was, that was quite handy, but I enjoyed the course and I've been in um, planning ever since. That was 1993. I've had stints in state governments, agencies, a number of councils, and then I went out on my own and I've had various, um, you know, private consulting, um, actual businesses, my own businesses, but then also a role in a multinational firm and then back out on my own again with Planic. What Nicole, I'm interested. I, I'm interested in the whys, why people do stuff, and I, I love that backstory. Can you elaborate a little bit for the benefit of people as to what's involved in those five years? What type of things are they getting you to look at in the degree? Look, I think um, it was interesting because I think they want you um, and teach you uh, during the course to um, come at town planning more from a social perspective, um, from, uh, you know, an equality and fairness um, perspective and, um, you know, things such as um, conserving the environment, like the, the, um, the 
not the built environment, but the natural environment, ensuring that everybody has access to housing, um, you know, uh, also, you know, health, um, open, fresh air, ecologically sustainable development, that type of thing. So it comes, you, you get a really broad knowledge base. I have to say, though, when you actually launch out as a town planner, that's actually when you really learn what town planners do. <laughs> so you sort of, you you come out with all these ideologies from university and um, I think they sit somewhere in the grey matter at the back of your brain and and, and probably um, help with your functioning as a town planner, but it's not really until you in the job that you um, learn quickly what you have to do. So it's a lot of report writing or what, what are some of the submissions? Yeah. Look, I think one thing that they did say at university is whichever direction, there was multiple directions you could take your career as a town planner, but they said um, you really do need local government experience because that is basically the backbone of town planning, um, the growth of cities in um in Australia and in New South Wales, uh, local governments do the majority of the work or controlling of, of development. So you need that for a start and then you can branch out into state government, um, which is um, either focused on, um, say, for instance, Sydney Water, they have town planners there, Transport for New South Wales, they have planners there. So more um, specific they have more specific focuses. And then the Department of Planning has like a broad strategic um, focus on state plans, um, which they umbrella over the top of local plans. And um, But without that local knowledge, because at the local um, level, that's where these plans become reality. And without that um, expertise or experience you can kind of float around in state government and not really know what you're doing or not produce plans that are workable and implementable. So does the degree get you to focus on aspects of a particular local area and and analyze them I'm, I'm just trying to imagine some of the assignments you'd be getting. Yeah look I think um, we did probably in the first couple of months of um starting the course we were given an assignment to um, plan a little town we had no um, knowledge so we all went away with our colored pencils it was a long time ago and um, drew a pretty pic picture of uh, usually like well my one looked like sort of a tourist resort where I'd like to live and then we presented that to the classroom and um, promptly the lecturer would um, sensitively show us um, how, <laughs> how it, they were completely hopeless and didn't actually think about sort of the, the underlying um, issues that had to also be considered such as, you know, topography and drainage and street access and built form and stuff like that. So, yeah, that was an interesting way to get thrown in and then exposed for having no knowledge whatsoever. So, we, you know, we had... Um, assignments like that. Uh, we had one lecturer who um, consistently brought out the um, uh, projector and just showed us hundreds and hundreds of slides of um, towns and cities all around the world. And there were, um, you know, architects mainly that had uh, sort of forged 
urban design principles for for um, town plans like um, Canberra, um, Walter Burley Griffin, and others. So we we um, you know learnt about their um, I guess their ideologies and considered them and whether they were um, good where they worked well and where they had been perhaps bastardised over time through lack of um, planning afterwards. Yeah, so that's went on a few excursions. Uh, it's a long time ago, Michael. Can't really remember too much else. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's all good. I, I like it. Uh, how early in the degree um, were you exposed to that kind of language? Like maybe an urban plan I'm thinking about the language of, of plans, Nicole, because it's such code, right? A floor plan is code and it's a code yeah. form of communication that many people rightly can't look at and say, that's a great space. I get the quality of that space. I can see the potential for that space. And we do it and we try and do it and make it atmospheric and get it to clients to appreciate it from plans, elevations, sections or whatever. Um, but the onus is on us to work them through that. That's part of our consultancy. You're given the task of assessing them, making a comment on them, saying whether they're appropriate or not. Um, how early in the degree were you, set, were, you, were you trained in reviewing, assessing floor plans or did that come yeah. post-degree? Um, no, I think um, in the third year, we concentrated um, the first couple of years are probably just a background and, and a total blur for me, to be honest. But in the third year, we went out halfway through the year and um, to make us partially useful to whatever workforce, I mean, we were getting paid for that year's work experience. We actually did um, uh, like a course on the, on the planning legislation. And we had a brilliant lecturer actually who made... Um, made walked us through the environmental planning and assessment act um, and the regulations actually the regulations um, were kind of the recipe for how you made local environmental plans and why you made them and what the rules were and then the rules for development itself are contained in the environmental planning assessment act um, and then we talked about the land and environment court and um, so i think for six months we were like heavily um, programmed into the legislation and what that meant and and how um how you assess a development application and and what sections of the act are really important in terms of um assessing environmental impact amenity neighborhood notification and objections and why someone would go to court and how long they've got to you know lodge an appeal and what that process looks like so we did that for for six months then we went out and probably retained, I don't know, 30% of that <laughs> and um, learnt quite a bit in that year out. And then we came back and probably did another follow-up six months on more legislative um, as well as still a lot a lot more of the um, overarching principles of town and country planning and a lot of stuff from the UK um, we learnt. And then the last year was mainly writing our thesis and you know finalizing a few courses i think what was your thesis about Carl? um my thesis was about canal estates wow at that time they were a big um you know they were all over um 
uh, east coast actually there's a lot obviously in the gold coast there was sylvania waters um in sydney and um you know there's there's a few more around but it had become um obvious that reclaiming land and making kind of um false and not natural water systems you know created a lot of issues there was there was a lot of um the water wasn't clean um there were it was predominantly environmental issues with the state of and the um, um sediment etc that actually found its way into the natural estuaries from these canal estates uh, and they were essentially banned I think I think in my thesis I probably said that they were a great thing and then when I finished my <laughs> thesis shortly after that <laughs> they were eradicated oh no <laughs> wow did it include drawings or was it mainly mainly text and no, no. mainly text a town planner um doesn't really draw I, I know that sounds ridiculous because planner makes you think that someone who can draw we learn to read plans and um, analyze them and we know how a plan should be um, but very very little drawing yeah right okay so you, you graduated um, with this did you say you went straight to state or local government no I'd already I actually before um, finishing uni and even before going out on that one year I had a stint with the um, Department of Housing. I managed to get a little part-time job one Christmas with Department of Housing and then that snowballed. I got a job with the Water Board. Then when immediately um, after I graduated, not, not graduated but finished uni, I got a job with Parramatta City Council and Sutherland Council and Landcom, which was an arm of um, the Department of Housing, the arm that built the houses. Um, and what would, would this, was it convenience? Was it access? What would make you pick a council, Nicole? Was it that there was a job there and you went for it? Yeah, that there was a job there predominantly. Yeah. The interesting thing was I one of my first jobs was Parramatta Council and, and you know, that was back in 93, the beginning of 93. And um, even back then, uh, it was horrendous place to get to from where I lived. And I don't think it's... Um, certainly hasn't got any better um, but I don't think it's got that much worse either so I think transport connections have mildly improved over the time. Is that because you had a stint at some point at Transport for New South Wales advising them on planning policy? <laughs> <laughs> no I don't think it was anything to do with me. I'm just joking. So, <laughs> Lots of tollways. So a few councils did it like what I didn't count them was there maybe three or four councils before yeah, planning? Yeah, three or, or four councils, yeah. Yeah. And at what point did you say, right, I've I've done my stint at local government, I'm now going to venture into private. Was there any moments, catalyst experience? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I actually spent 17 years in Wagga Wagga. So I worked for eight and a half years at Wagga Wagga City Council. Um, that was uh, brilliant. But I worked in all the different departments. I worked in the, you know, planning DA assessments. I worked in strategic planning. I helped with the background to their 2010 local environmental plan. Um, then I moved into a department called the Commercial Response Unit, um, contrary to Sydney, Wagga Wagga and other regional towns, cities are places that want to attract development and attract business. So they actually set up their own 
unit and I was part of that unit when a um, business was considering coming to town. We sort of welcomed them with open arms and tried to help as much as possible finding sites and, you know, not doing their DA but help helping facilitate a smooth process so that they would choose Wagga as a place to come. So I worked there and I'd basically been everywhere and there was no other opportunity, like there was no other nearby local government authority. So I um, had a trip. I went on a rotary exchange actually to England and um, I spent a couple of days in some government authorities around London. And I also um, spent a day or two with a planning consultancy in just outside of London. And I think that was the, impetus for me to come back and say right I'm going out on my own and that's what I did. Uh, how does the planning process differ in London to Australia are they almost very similar? very similar yeah I think I've heard because I obviously was just an observer over there um, I've heard though that New South Wales planning system is particularly difficult to understand um, however some of the other states I think have um, mimicked a bit of our legislation or like followed New South Wales um, in terms of say seniors living etc they've got similar policies but um yeah it's quite difficult in New South Wales so I just stick to that I don't try and go beyond the borders and learn the other legislations. Well that's a good segue Nicole um, we were talking about this before I hit record for the for the listeners uh, we've done a few episodes leading up to this stage which is the development application stage and I'd made a point Nicole that it's the first time if you think of all the stages leading up to this which sometimes town planners are involved with but we've worked as a team so there's our team there's planner architect client working collaborating to achieve a result now we're bundling that as a package and submitting it to someone else that's going to take a different Set of uh, have a different agenda or focus to the analysis as to whether that's good or not. Our focus to date has been whether it's a creative response to the client's vision. And sure, with your assistance and thinking of the reality that we have to submit a DA, we've thought about DA controls and not being ridiculous. But now we're submitting it to this authority to say, okay, how about it? And if we could just take a little step back, you were talking about this before I hit record. Where, where does this idea of a DA come from in, in Australia? Like the current legislation is 1979, but what yeah. happened before then? Yeah. Okay. So we our whole system's based off um, the United Kingdom. And um, I think in Australia, you know, there was the Federation and um, there was an intergovernment agreement between Commonwealth and state and states and territories um, and I, I think the first um, sort of sniff of planning was mainly to do with health I mean there was the um, the pandemics etc that that happened um, early on it was around um, you know getting rid of waste and and um, keeping people healthy basically so that was a lot to do with um, buildings and streets and environments Um, so that was probably the impetus in the early days and by 1951 there was the 
Cumberland um, planning scheme, County of Cumberland planning scheme, which New South Wales government um, put out, which covered the whole of Sydney. And then what they had under that were called interim development orders and the local governments had their own interim development orders that spoke to um, or took guidance from the County of Cumberland planning scheme. And so you put in a development application under, under that scheme. And then in um, like 10 years after that, in the mid sixties, um, you were able to start building apartments. And that was when, um, you know, things started to get a little bit out of control and they decided to, that they needed something a little bit um, better. And they brought in the Environmental Planning and Assessment Act in 1979. So it took, took some time to come through. And over the years, um, like planning has grown in strength as a, I guess, as, as, as part of the team process. When I first started in local government, it was still really all about engineering and it was a lot to do with health and building. So the actual built structures, um, you know, when I first started, even after the Environmental Planning Assessment Act, there was two processes there was the development application process and then there was the building application process building applications you could have a whole bunch of um, conditions um, attached to those so development was development application was more about the use and the spatial um, arrangement of buildings and things um, but we were always second to the engineering um, to you know stormwater um, sewer uh, those type of things, and then it just jumped to the building application process. And and then um, I can't give you a date, actually, when when building applications were knocked out. I think it was sometime in the 2000s. Um, and then a lot more of the detail had to come into the development application process. So it got a little bit more complex. Um, and that's that's the... The actual act itself, I mean, there's a lot of been a, a lot of um, changes, but it's served for a long time and it seems to be still doing a good job. Yeah, sure. So just on the act, um, let's talk about, we've got the planning act that in broad terms speaks to the idea of how we work on development, how development is controlled, regulations, et cetera. But on the topic of regulations from the act, what are the main what are the main instruments, if, if there are, if we can call them that? Where, where are the set of rules for anyone that's thinking, what can I or can I not do? Sure. Okay, so the, the main, um, the Environmental Planning and Assessment Act um, had a set of regulations that were actually like the recipe for how you make state plans or how you make local environmental plans um, and so, so they were the recipes for making plans and the Environmental Planning and Assessment Act is actually where you assess development applications and um, where the rules are for developments. So um, the, the Environmental Planning Assessment Act stands over the top predominantly of local environmental plans that every council has um, and between local and um, and the EP&A Act are some state environmental planning policies. That's where the state government have taken um, 
more important issues, for instance, and say seniors living, or at one stage there was dual occupancies. Um, and, exempt and, and complying development. Yeah, exempt and complying development, boarding houses, um, where, where state government have wanted to exert more control on housing, for instance, um, they've actually created state policies which overrode um, anything that a local government authority decided to make in terms of rules. So there are also regional environmental plans, but there's, there's not many of those left, so I won't really talk about those. Sure. Then, the, so we move on. I think you're talking about the SEPs, the state environmental planning policies. Just on the LEPs, what, what are some typical controls from LEP? Sure. So the LEPs are um, the legislative, um, you know, the, the legislative controls, the main ones um, include for development height. Um, a floor space ratio, which is related to the gross floor area of the building. In some uh, local government areas, they have a landscape area control. Um, they're, they're probably the main three controls. Um, they have miscellaneous other controls con um, in, within the local environmental plan, but they're, they're the main ones. If you want to um, get a variation to those, you have to jump through you know, significant hoops and, and present um, variation requests, which are separate documents in themselves. And then under that is the um, development control plan process, which is policy that's created by local government. And there's a whole raft of other controls that local government um, create, but policy is there to be flexible and to be potentially varied, but you have to um, counsel or assessing applications on their merits. So that's when a town planner comes in handy. Um, if an architect is, is um, you know, putting a proposal together and they're basically um, complying with every control and they have time to do their own statement of environmental effects, which is, which is the document that speaks to all those controls, then they don't really need a town planner. But when there are variations, um, then it's a good idea to get a town planner on board to help with that documentation. Because you can put it in the context of previous projects or previous assessment of things having worked for council and how that might be received. Like, Yeah, I think it's um, probably a number of factors. It's, it's experience in local government. It's, it's experience with background in um, general education and where you would be arguing not for your client for instance um, not because they want a um, four-car garage but you'd be arguing in the in the correct way which would be showing mitigating impacts or how it's not um, affecting anyone if they have that four-car garage and, and pointing out where how it does comply and where it where it doesn't meet the controls, why it's still satisfactory. And we kind of point not just to the controls, but we start talking about the objectives that are also found in those plans and, and argue how a development still achieves the objectives. And you can go right up to the objectives that are the objects of the EP&A Act, if you like, and you can um, sort of show a link all the way up through the legislation why this um, development that 
Michael Clark has designed <laughs> is so good. <laughs> it's it's actually a good segue, Nicole. We we worked on a project in North Bondi where I've actually mentioned this in the previous episode. Uh, we had a strategy for an internal courtyard to bring northern light into the project, uh, which was a semi-detached house south facing. And so the effort to bring Northern Light into the main living space was important. However, what that did for the first floor addition is it pushed it more to the rear. And as a consequence, because the preferred arrangement is uh, ground floor to be, uh, or sorry, first floor to be pushed back from ground floor. But if you've got a hole in the length of the plan and you've got to push some of the rear floor back to avoid that hole, if of course in our case the first floor was um, longer because uh, it was two rooms that means that you don't have as great a setback between ground and first floor and I want to use that maybe as an example instead of the four car garage Nicole as good as <laughs> is an example there's but, none of those in Sydney because they're all in basements <laughs> now with turntables but um, what that meant is we had a very slight breach in height because if you if you look you've got ground floor you know a couple of meters in front of first floor but you know for whatever I'm just making numbers up here it would have been better if that was three meters or a bit more and what we did as a team is right we said you know what what was the process we identified how did we say let's try and minimize this um look I think uh the the process that you take in those um instances where you have to make a development better on site for the inhabitants and you need to vary controls you need to demonstrate that notwithstanding varying those controls you're not impacting neighbors or the impacts are acceptable and um, that you're meeting meeting other objectives like i said of the um, council's dcp or the lep and i think in that case in the end, the actual overheight component at the rear wasn't really an issue. Um, there were some other issues with that development that, that made it more difficult to get, you know, support from council. Um, but I however, think also we said as a group, let's try and get that as low as possible, right? So the breach was 4%. It's not like we're talking 50% or 60% over the limit. So, That's right. So we try and change a roof form to um, to to bring that percentage down. Um, and in that case, we had um, people um, researching and finding other examples in the direct vicinity where councils had approved, you know, overheight components of neighbouring developments that were a larger percentage overheight than what we were um, proposing. But but. That's generally, I mean, it's it's good to point out that that councils have um, allowed those variations. However, it's that sometimes can destabilise your other arguments. You have to every application has individual circumstances and needs to be argued on its own merits. It's not um, it's not uh, a sure way of getting approval to start pointing up and down the street where other developments have got through for whatever the reasons were. Sure. And if there are 30 controls, we're not breaching 30 controls, albeit minor. We're trying to limit the extent of the breach, particularly 
in LEPs, right? With, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So in that case, you know, it wasn't like we were 50% over the height limit. We said we're a little bit over the height limit or what can we do to reduce the height limit and can we limit the non-compliance to that alone? And that's the strategy we adopt forward. It's not like, yes, I think as you're saying, there's an opportunity to breach LEP through this mechanism, but that doesn't, we're not saying to everyone, so go and do it every time because you yes. can. Yes, exactly right. And also um, often a, a breach of height, for instance, it may also lead to a breach in floor space, which it did in this instance as well. Now that's um, in that council's case, like the, two, the only two major um, controls and we, we were asking to breach both of them. It gets more challenging the more the more controls you want to breach. Yeah, but on a merit basis, you try and argue that is it, is it overshadowing? Is it bulky? Can you see it from the public domain? Yeah. Yes. Cool. Um, if that's LEP, is are you far more relaxed? I don't want to use the word relaxed, Nicole, but are you possibly less less stressed about breaches? Important that they're minor of DCP or is it not as simple as that? No, it's probably not as simple as that. I, I do find that councils are often quite wedded to their own policies that they've created, um, particularly when there they've are some councils that have extensive um, development. policies, inspirations that, that you have to show that you've um, considered. But in general, um, it, it is easier to, to argue a variation on a development control plan control. Sure. Uh, it would be, I would imagine, Nicole, it was the case for this example. But I asked two questions here thinking of non-compliance. Uh, would you say that more often than not, you're brought in a little bit as Mrs. Fixit, that we've tried, it's not gone so well, and now we're reaching out to a planner to help? In other words, we've breached, it's not been received well with council, and we've called in a lifeline, or do people preempt that and get your assistance? I mean, I think there's a real strong case that I've said in other episodes to try and get the design team, the consultant design team together as soon as possible to talk through everything long before yeah. anyone's got too excited about the opportunities. But where do you sit on that? What's your experience? I think you get, um, you get all, I think a, um, a seasoned developer will always have a full team, say like the pistols loaded with with everybody on board from the beginning because they see the value in that um, in in getting um, as quick approval as possible in getting the design refined as quickly as possible, um, getting the issues sort of out of the way and dealt with and and some of those developers are quite um, prepared to go to court um, straight away and want the team on board. Um, I think a lot of the time, though, I do get called on after, called on board after an application is starting to go off the rails or when um, a council has given a request for additional information. Often councils will say to 
a draftsperson or an architect or whoever the applicant may be, we think you need to get town planning assistance. And, and that would be probably 30% of the inquiries I get would wow. be from someone at council, not, not recommending me by any stretch or just saying you need to find a town planner and, and it will come through a Google search. Yeah, right. I, I think there's merit in saying that, um, you know, you get the professional trained in the subject matter to advise on the subject matter, whilst like you're capable of a, a assessing a design, I think you'd be the first to say that you don't necessarily be engaged to do a design. Oh, absolutely. And not. if that's if that's what I subscribe to, then similarly, it's almost remiss to think that someone other than a town planner can comment on the town planning merits of an application. So I yeah. completely get councils um, accepting that. Did you feel that when working at councils that you had a bit of a, a strange re stranger reaction to any submission that didn't have any town planning attached to it? Um, look, I still do. I mean, occasionally I do subcontracting work for councils and I do um, assess development applications um, more you know later lately in my career there've probably been a little bit more um, detailed applications or you know not something that someone's drawn up on the back of a coaster but I've certainly had experience multiple times and since I've been a consultant town planner where applications are lodged where a statement of environmental effects is, is a one-page dot point form that says everything complies and there's no impact and, and that's it with a date um, and it's written by I don't know who. Um, and occasionally, I don't like to say it, but there's, there's, nothing that, there's nothing in the legislation that states a town planner must prepare a statement of environmental effects. So council have to accept, mm. um, you know, if, if there's something that a, a piece of paper that says statement of environmental effects, they have to um, accept it and then they mm. can send out a letter requesting um, for additional information or they can reject. They have uh, 21 days when you lodge an application to actually reject an application that the information's not sufficient um, without allowing it to be lodged but yeah uh, I I'm, I'm still I'm sure that there's still some simple um, applications that can get through without the use of a town planner but increasingly the more simple applications are no longer development applications because you mentioned before the exempt and complying yeah, development yeah. code and that that code is being basically um, amended almost monthly um, yeah. to keep ref in increasing the amount of um, uses and activities and buildings and structures that can be um, carried out without development consent. Yeah, 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 that's a, that's a good point. So working with your team, you make a comment or, or you confirm, particularly if there's a few controversial components, it seems to me almost, uh, given that there's a higher risk of that not being well received without assessment from a consultant town planner before lodgement. And the alternative is really the faster track process, which is the complying development pathway. So that's, that's some good points there, Nicole, appreciate that. Um, 
We've spoken at the last episode about some of the things that are submitted for a typical DA, a house alterations and additions or, or similar. I'm wondering just in your experience in recent times, if there's any things you're, you're noticing in those submissions that some people might not appreciate need to be added to help expedite the assessment that some people are missing quite a lot lately? Um, I think... I think a, a lot of people who are wanting to uh, build a building and it's their first time of um, building something, they don't appreciate that probably the first step is to get a land survey if they haven't got yeah. a land survey. Um, the other issue that, that comes up multiple times for me in applications where I'm, I'm helping the applicant is that a survey that was carried out um, doesn't quite give... Um, me the information to help me write a report that covers off every issue like privacy like overlooking so um, some councils will actually pick it up um, others others um, won't pick it up in actually the serve because the survey is um, almost always required to be lodged with an application unless it's just for a change of use. That's if you're building something, you have to do a land survey. Yep. But um, yeah, we need sort of more detail just around the edges of a site, what's happening just next door, what trees are right on the boundary, what, what windows and balconies are facing our um, property that we want to develop. Those, that kind of information is really helpful. Um, what about on drawings, architectural drawings? Anything that you think council's asking more of or that's lacking? Oh, absolutely. Probably in the last um, three or four years, councils are always asking for um, gross floor area calculations submitted as a separate plan, yep. um, landscape or deep soil calculations um, submitted as a separate plan. They're not plans that get stamped, um, but that helps them um, with... Um, with their assessment, um, with like like I was mentioning before, in the old days, a lot of detail in buildings could be dealt with in the building application stage. So now, if you're doing any commercial um, development, you have to get a, um, a Building Code of Australia compliance report, and they're looking at distances from exits. Um, you know, amenities for restaurants and numbers of uh, hand basins and all these fire extinguishers, all these um, like really drilling down into the detail, that type of work has to be done now at the DA stage. Okay, cool. I One thing I'm interested in, Nicole, having worked on the other side, I always feel that the assessment team are under the pump they're really under a lot of pressure. I feel like I'd, you can correct me here, but I'd love to go on the other side of those doors. I've got this image of every planner having 20 applications and um, nowhere near enough time. We've got the, we can talk about this a little bit, I suppose the, the provisions under the um, Environmental Planning Assessment Act as to how long it takes to determine an application after it being lodged. So there's pressure in that regard. There's pressure from Department of Planning to get those DAs out so that construction can continue and inject that to the economy. Is there anything that we can do on this side to help the team at the other end? Like I'm thinking even before lodgement, is there anything, can we talk to them before lodgement? I'd, I'd love to say um, that 
that there was a way of helping the assessment planners. Um, but I have to say since COVID, I mean, prior to COVID, um, local government assessment times um, were always blowing out for development applications. Local government had all their reasons why. And then through COVID, um, there, there just seems to be um, a huge um, lack of town planners. Um, I know if certain councils have got like 10, a dozen or more vacancies and um, the planners that are, planners are leaving to work for state government or taking other, um, I want to say easier jobs, because if you can imagine, you know, a place needs 10 people to do a job and do, you know, deal with the workload and then there's eight and then there's six. I mean, those six people, everyone's looking to bail out, you know, the mm. boat's taking on water. So it's, um, it, the there is a pre-DA process, but I know even with councils at the moment, they um, can take up to seven or eight weeks just to just to schedule the pre-DA meeting after you've lodged the material. So if if the developer or person wanting to do the building work has all the time in the world, then that's fine. But um, yeah, there's but there's no it, real. Does it help though, Nicole, if you're an assessment officer and you've had a pre-DA, so you've got your head into the development a little bit, by the time you lodge it, it's not as fresh necessarily, politically, strategically, does that help things or not necessarily because that planner um, might have left? Or Look, I think um, pre-DAs for certain types of development um, can be um, really helpful. I think where a development concept is is really wedded and um, reliant on seeking variations um, to council's controls. It's it's probably um, pointless having a pre DA because if council gives you the advice that they're not going to, um, they don't think they're going to support it. But the client, for instance, is is not willing to compromise then you either don't put a DA in or you just go go for it. Um, the reason why I say that too is when you put in a full package development application and you've got all the justifications for, for the um, variations, et cetera, and councils had adequate time to assess it and they've been paid to assess it, then, you know, maybe there's, there's a better chance there that you'll get the outcome you want. Often, I think with pre-DAs, with a sketch concept, they might um, that they might not be really giving you the the answer that you want, and they might not have really considered. Often, I turn up to pre-DAs, and I don't think the um, officers actually really looked at the yeah. before yeah. the meeting. <laughs> yeah, I, I went to one, and I won't say where, but I walked in, and the assessment officer was just reading a report the whole time I presented. And I, I did get that feel. But then there are other times, Nicole, where I've, I've really felt an appreciation from the officer that we've presented, gone to this level to discuss. And they said, when do you think you're going to lodge? And maybe I'm naive, Nicole, and, and the perennial optimist. But I thought that she's maybe resourcing. She's maybe making a note, get ready for this application, make time in your work schedule. 
And for me, and no doubt for you, Nicole, I like to know things in advance. I like to plan my week. I like to plan my year if I can. It's hard. Yeah. In but you don't think that's binary necessarily all councils? Not really, but I think, um, and this is, this is an interesting way to look at it, but as a professional, as a professional architect, as a professional planner, I mean, a pre-DA process is sometimes a safety net for a client who has um, great expectations and, yep. and may need those to be watered down somewhat or yep. may need to hear it from the horse's mouth yep. and be present at that pre-DA meeting. Sure. Um, so in some respects, um, you know, sometimes depending on the client or the issues, um, I think that, you know, pre-DA is, is worthwhile. But, yes, yeah, certainly pre-COVID, I think uh, pre-DAs for some councils worked really well. They gave you, uh, me as a professional, they, they basically gave you a recipe of expectations. Sometimes they raised issues in a pre-DA that you didn't know existed for the site, but they yeah. had the information and that's brilliant. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so it's, it's quite helpful in that way. Well, what was it about the pandemic, Nicole, that's seeing this exodus? Is it working from home? It's having to go to the offices? What, what, what is it? Can you put your finger on anything in particular? You know what? I think um, what I've noticed when I've done some assessments for council, it's not just the town planning assessment. Those, the applications get um, referred all around internally and, and yep. sometimes off to places like the um, RMS for for road or trains for train lines or transgrid because the power lines are going overhead. Um, there's multiple referrals. And I found when I worked in council and observations of doing work for council that there's um, fairly poor communication at the best of times between the departments. Yeah. And if you can imagine, you know, 150 people work somewhere and you've got nine or 10 people need to provide you with some uh, have a review of an application and provide you with their advice seems like you know at least two of them are always on holidays and yeah. and they're waiting for the for the landscape person in council to come back or the tree protection person or the health and building whatever it may be they they it takes a long time to coordinate all those referrals to have a complete internal consideration and then you have to write very um long-winded reports that if there's a lot of duplication and um and then it has to go up to be read and reviewed by your peers and then sometimes it has to go to a, a panel meeting yeah. which is then throws it another month out so um yeah i think i think there's that would that was difficult before COVID, but yeah. once everyone started working from home, you can imagine it'd be just nearing. If someone wasn't responsive to emails, um, it'd be really difficult to. I think councils actually had trouble even with their online people having access to their um, online systems. Yeah. Um, in council, yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. That's, that's a great answer. I appreciate that, Nicole. What about just on a tactical level? I, I made a comment in the last episode that on a case-by-case -case basis, we analyse the quality of the design and the important elements to the design, which is a response to the client's vision. And if 
there's an element of that that doesn't strictly speaking and here with the controls well let's talk about it with your assistance etc but let's also appreciate that even with your advice even with nicole on board we can't guarantee an approval we don't know what's going to happen behind those closed doors it sounds pretty hectic as you were describing but where do you sit in relation to love thy neighbor like is there a benefit to the applicant to the owner doing as much groundwork with certainly directly adjoining neighbours to present then the scheme to, in a way, do some of council's work for them or the assessment team for them? Yeah. Um, I think councils, uh, a number of councils encourage that. Um, look, it really depends on the neighbours. It depends on the relationship. It depends on how much the, the client is actually um, wanting to consider their neighbour's view um, and even as a consultant sometimes once you start talking about neighbours that can go back to years and years of yeah. you know they did this and then I did that and and um, they never consulted me whatever whatever the course may be but um, again I think if if a client is wedded to their plans and they're not considering um, changing um, then they may as well just lodge the application because the Environmental Planning Assessment Act and the planning process has neighbourhood notification or neighbour yeah. notification as part of the process. Um, and often it can be embarrassing if, if um, someone goes to their neighbour and says, these are my plans, and the neighbour says, yeah, no problem, but they're actually too embarrassed or confronted or maybe yeah. they didn't have a chance to really look. But when they do look at the plans later or they talk to other people in the household, it becomes a problem. And then that's an awkward relationship in itself because they're going to put in an objection um, and that will cause sort of ongoing issues for those neighbours. Not only that, but I've had situations where clients have gone to neighbours' house and come out in tears because the neighbours just, yeah, it, it developments can bring out the worst in people, yeah. particularly adjoining neighbours. And I suppose what you're saying in a roundabout way is we have these systems going right back to your discussion of the Environmental Planning Act that permits development with consent. And yes. so if you don't have that relationship with neighbour or you think that maybe you're pushing a little bit further, if you've got the team and you've worked through the issues, know that essentially that's that's council's job to work through those issues. Don't say to yourself, I better talk to my neighbour necessarily before I lodge. Yeah. 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 Councils do encourage it, um, but, you know, sometimes it backfires basically. We, we had a point here to talk about what happens after it gets behind the counter, but I think you've discussed that in relation to where things are at, uh, at, at 2022 in terms of workloads. And in my mind, I always did understand that, Nicole, that I feel like the, uh, the assessment officer has a tough time, particularly like for some projects that have to go to fire brigade and the police and transport New South Wales, like I'm talking bigger projects, state projects. Yeah. It's, it's a tough undertaking and uh, yeah. Uh, I'm indebted to having someone like you on our side of the fence to say, let's present it this way to expedite things. But let's go just right to the end. So we've got a stamped approval. 
Now, is that is that the end, Nicole? You mentioned building approval and you said that's gone. The BA is gone. Yeah. Now that we've got a DA and now the DA is more developed and requires more information, does that mean we just go for it? We can build now? <laughs> no. No, there is a um, construction certificate process after that. Um, it's not. It's a process where you can use um, council if you want. Um, they have their own um, certifiers, um, but you can also use private certifiers. And you you have more like architects, as you know, would um, do more detailed specifications sometimes if that's required. And um, you have to go through a construction certificate process usually it's unless it's a, a major project usually it's it's a, a bit quicker than the da process yeah so da is approval to develop with conditions one of the yeah. conditions is you get a construction certificate before you can build yeah that's right yeah now nicole i i don't know about you but you know i change my mind a lot on many things in my life the clothes i wear the books I read, the movies I'm interested in or, or whatever, and you look back on photos and think that, I think that anyone would be, you know, not ridiculed for saying, you know what, I'm not sure about this aspect anymore. Like I've got DA approval, but I want to change a bedroom configuration. I've had another child. Uh, we need the elderly to move in with us. We need another room. Do we have to go through DA again? What can we do? Yeah. Yeah. Um well, minor alterations to like an existing floor plate, for instance, would um, be um, complying development. You wouldn't require a development application. Um, things that trigger uh, a modification to a development application, which is basically the development application process again, things that would trigger that would be um, if you were dealing with a heritage building, a building that was heritage listed, and then the council... Um, is wanting to be involved with every aspect and every any minor change. Um, some high, the the zoning of the property comes into play as well. If you're in a in an environmental management zone, for instance, not just a regular residential zone, sometimes um, you there, there are more requirements for DAs. Or if you bushfire, if you're in a bushfire prone area and you're wanting to change. Um, locations of windows or materiality of the building, for instance, that may um, trigger a modification because of the bushfire concern. But 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 for minor, you can generally get away with minor um, tweaks to your plans. And the certifier who gives you the construction certificate, it's it's um, you know if they're satisfied that it's substantially the same, then they'll sign off on it. But if they're not, is there an alternative to full-blown DA? I'm leading the witness here. <laughs> oh, <trying> yes. <laughs> yeah, there is an alternative. It's just called a, a, a modified application. Um, so you, it's just a modification to the original DA. However, they can take... Um, just as long. Yeah. They can take just as long. If it's an error that council... Maybe there's, a con, there's the conditions of consent and one was made in error... Council usually fix those up without costs within a couple of weeks. Um, if it's super minor, maybe they'll get something out in a month or so. Um, but if it's, you know, things that need a little bit more consideration or, or something that needs to be 
sent around internally and notified to neighbours again, well, really you're back thrown into that mix can take substantially longer. The council have actually, the Act um, gives council 40 days with which to, the whole Act was set up so that councils would um, assess applications within 40 days. Yeah, that doesn't that, sound like a long time when you say it, but... Uh... No, it's, well, it's not. If you consider that an application has to be accepted, processed, put on neighbourhood notification, which is generally 14 days, say you've got a week at the beginning, that's um, 21 days already, then they have to, everyone in council has to get their comments back to a planner and a report's written and someone reads it and signs off on it and a consent's generated. I mean, 40 days is, you know, that I've never had a DA go through in 40 days. But, but what that does is gives the applicant the option to lodge an appeal with the Land and Environment Court if they want from 40 days. Yeah. Um, if they're not happy. Yeah, I had a, a, a window, a, an application for a few windows to a um, conversion warehouse in City of Sydney approved in three weeks. That's that's my record. Wow, <laughs> you know, that I is think, excellent. I think it was timing. I submitted it at the end, at the beginning of the year and maybe there was less less DAs sitting for um, an there was, a, there was an incentive period. I don't know whether it was linked to any legislation, but it was certainly a direction from the government that um, councils had to implement a fast-tracked process. Yep. I don't know if you remember that, but there, yeah, was, there was even applications that were supposed to be dealt with within 10 days. Mm. Um, I think a lot of those type of things might have been stripped out and may have found their way into complying development. Yeah. I'm not, not yeah. quite sure, but certainly I never hear of fast-tracked applications anymore. The term yeah. has been lost. Yeah, I, I do remember that. Yeah. All right. So um, you kind of implied this already or spoken about this to a certain extent. The DA has been refused. What options do I have? I've got court, you mentioned. Yes. You can ask for a um, review of determination. Um, so uh, this is actually a stage that I sometimes get involved when a planner wasn't used at the first time. Um, and a, a client and an architect or a draftsperson have a refusal in hand. And then um, in that case, I would generally advise people to seek a review of determination. So you essentially submit the application again. I would never submit exactly the same application. I would try and address some of the issues or the reasons for the refusal and submit amended plans. Um, and usually if, if a town planner's engage then you have maybe more comprehensive reporting around why this amended approval addresses the concerns and should be considered favorably so that's that's a first um, step who reviews um, that nicole who's the actual parties reviewing it the same assessment team or different um, staff no it can't be the same um, staff member who assesses it but it is invariably the same um, probably department or manager yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's 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 not um, it's not as though you can put in the same application and maybe get a different planner with a completely different view of it. Yeah, it's, that's unlikely to happen. That's why you need to um, address the issues and probably make some changes. Um, so that's one avenue, and then um, another avenue is to go directly to um, a land and environment court appeal. 
Um, but that's obviously a, a lot more costly. Um, and there, that's not really a fast process as well. I think it's about six months. Did you have a date on our? No, it would have been, it would have been close to that. Uh, for yeah. the benefit of listeners, Nicole and I have had that experience. And yeah, I, geez, no, maybe it was, it was six months. I think it was six yeah. months. Anyway, you, you need to work through that with your design team, particularly like if you're going down that avenue, I wouldn't go anywhere near that avenue, like even have it on the agenda without someone like Nicole, a town planner at, at the helm to talk through, right, well, what, what are we doing here? What's the strategy? Um, and therefore, the appeal, Nicole, you're getting in solicitors that are generally trained in town planning. Do you have to do a town planning degree before you can do, uh, do you know, before you can do um, LEC cases? Be, um, no, a number of them are planners, but I think um, there are uh, lawyers who just specialise in planning law. They may not have been town planners originally. Yep. Yep. Um, sometimes they come out of surveying planning architecture, but I think some of them just from law with an interest in um, environment. Some lawyers work in local government and then um, may move across to consulting. Yeah, right. Yeah. But that's, that's an extreme decision. As a team, long before we've submitted the application, we want to do whatever we can to manage the risk of, you know, getting any version of a refusal, even a modification. And Nicole, I'd say that's one of the true benefits of having someone like you on this side of the fence, because we did as I recall, have a few back and forth points about where I'm talking archie speak with Nicole, uh, architectural speak and the benefit of this design, which I'm proud of, we're proud of on a design level. And you're looking at that and saying, well, sure, but from a planning level, this is the risk and this is the strategy that you have to present. On that note, Nicole, something I struggle with, and, and we are drawing to the end, when someone invites me to look at a project they've worked on or a builder tells me to come and look at a project to show me the quality of their building ability, I can't help but have a design opinion hat on. Yes. And, and I can't help but have an emotional response because of my design training. How, how do you step back and almost look at it as black and white and form and codes and controls? How do you strip back your emotional response to the design? Um, I have to say I definitely have the same response. Um, my response, though, um, if I'm working for a client, is is often coming. It's more of a, a personal fear for the client that, that you know, what's being um, either designed or whether, whether it's something that I don't like in the design or not. I mean, that's um, each to their own. What I find difficult is if, for instance, there's controls about um, streetscape um, in a heritage conservation area, for instance, um, and the, the, the design being put forward is, is really at odds with anything else in the street. I, that sort of rings alarm bells for me. I mean, personally, um, I wouldn't like my development to stand out that much, but that's just a personal viewpoint but yeah. just professionally I can see the alarm bells for me is that my job is so much harder to try and find um, reasons um, why the development meets the objectives 
yeah. um, the more and more it, it moves away from what councils controls are seeking. It's just a harder job for me to get that approval. Um, one one thing I just make one point that I see all the time, and I I don't like it as a town planner, and it's more in a, more of in a suburban sense, not in a um, in a city environment, but. I see people who are building houses or duplexes pushing those structures forward as far forward as possible. And I think I find these big boxy buildings leaning right over the street. And if I ask the question, if it's my friend who built their duplex or their house, oh, why did you decide to put that building, you know, where, where, why, what made you decide, oh, that was as far forward as we could go so that we could have the bigger backyard as possible. Um, and when the building's built, I can see it in the plan form if I'm looking at their plans, but when the building's built, it's just so much more bigger. Um, it, it looks so much more bigger and it's really leaning all over the street and I don't like that. Yeah. Um, and I think people don't appreciate that because they're just thinking, oh, I want a bigger backyard if they're, they're looking at it more from their own um, perspective. And maybe when the building's built, they don't see things like that. Like you say, when you go in and you'll see design, what you might call faults, but the people, the users, uh, the builder doesn't see it like that. Is that your experience? Oh, yeah, for sure. But like, obviously, I have a world, the world I've been trained in, a world, the way I see the world. And much to the chagrin of some people, I'll go to a restaurant, I'll look at a light fitting and go, why did they use that light? Or why is that detail like that? And <laughs> I've got better as the years um, go on of switching that off. I, uh, I talk about um, superhero interests in some of these presentations and like Superman has incredible vision and incredible hearing and he can hear the sound of clouds rustling together well how do you turn that off and I'm not saying that designers have this superhero abilities yes. but it really takes a bit for me to walk into a social setting and someone show me something they've done and appreciate that that's their choice and that's completely fine um, but as a designer, I might say, well, this could have been done a different way. And I think in your case, going back to that original comment about assessing some of those beautiful cities and urban planning strategies, I think that there's definitely an argument to, to say, I, I had a friend that I took to some suburban area and um, he felt that everything was just overdeveloped in the sense that everything was too big, too close. Um, and he found that a little bit claustrophobic. And I think you're resonating with that in that setting like one of the reasons why you'd have a setback is to provide curtilage from the street to make the street presence or street experience feel a bit more open and yes in exactly. buildings together so it's not that you nicole are subscribed to the idea that buildings it's it's not yeah it's not a design commentary on a building being too close it's a design commentary on what that means on an urban planning streetscape yes, and or, the public space yeah. Um, I'm, and that probably comes from those lectures way back when, when it was drummed into us about the, the social outcomes yeah. and, you know, the street, the public street, the, the pathway, people's front gardens, all that. I mean, that vision is, is public perception. It's public enjoyment. And, and I, I, I don't like to see the public um, cheated for, you know, yeah half a meter more backyard <laughs> yeah 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 i also think that it's presentation right so the more you have yourself and i'm not 
putting numbers here necessarily, it's all case by case. But the benefit of a setback is to create uh, landscaping to the front that is the presentation you're looking onto. The yes. further you're building to the street, well, what's left? The road to look onto, the footpath to look onto. So I think, yeah, that it's, it's an interesting point, which leads me to the final discussion point, Nicole. Do you uh, work both with projects or both on projects that have architects, don't have architects, or predominantly you're working on architecture projects? Um, I work with both. Um, I struggle. I, I mean, I do work with um, some drafts people. They call themselves building designers, I guess. I'm not sure if that is there. A, is there a certificate or something for that? <laughs> no, but the architect <laughs> is a protected term. So, <laughs> but I, building I guess, designer, what is that? I, I guess um, it's it's well no it could be an architect that's just not registered so right, okay. I guess I'm talking about someone trained in design architectural design in, in yeah I won't say interior design because you're working on um, projects that have massing but yeah. I the final point I wanted to ask is is there anything you could maybe say to the listeners who might be sort of toying with this idea of why, why work with an architect? Do you notice benefits to your experience working on projects that have architects? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think if you've got a um, very basic box extension, if your um, criteria is I've had my third child, I need a room three by three, you know, on the back of my house that no one's going to see, um, maybe, maybe you would get a draftsperson. If you were, um, if, if you were doing basically anything that you could um, see from the street, if you, if you were doing a, um, alts and ads to an existing um, dwelling, I think getting an architect's perspective is a great idea because they are looking spatially at the the floor plates and the the, the working of um, that whole building, not just plonking on rooms, um, and just just the whole design factor. And I think the end product um, with a good builder will be will be better. And in any area, I mean, particularly Sydney. Sydney is not a um, a cheap property is not cheap. Any investment that you make, including the use of like an architect um, versus a drafts person is going to pay you back threefold. You can see architecturally designed buildings, they just scream out quality when you're walking along the street. And, and I, I think um, I am a little bit biased against um, project homes um, and project home builders that have moved into the duplex kind yeah. of space as well because we're just seeing more and more um cookie cutter you know style buildings and the regular people who are wanting to do those buildings um want the maximum amount of floor space now for the least amount of money yeah and now we're seeing very cheaply built square built forms that that are um quite ugly I have yeah. to say ugly and um, a lot of the building materials have have um, got so cheap and um, lacking quality that I think those buildings begin to look old and um, out of style 
you know, within a couple of years of being built. Yeah, yeah. Well, no attack there on people pursuing that pathway. This is just reflections and insights from two professionals that do do go at it. Do all of your architects give you as much run for your money as as you did with us, Nicole? Is that <laughs> um, no? Look, I think I, I really enjoy um, working with architects, and I, I work with some you know great building designers as well. Um, I have to just take it, taking a step back in terms of like those those project homes and, and people and friends that have built them. Once you get inside those buildings, yeah. you know they are getting a lot of bang for buck. They're getting a lot of floor space, and and they those people enjoy living there. Um, I, because I deal with plans all the time, and because I see built forms all the time, I'm I might be just a little bit more like you, and maybe. Call me snobby. I don't know, but I. Well, you know I, what? You know what alternatives there are. You know that there are alternatives that you think yeah. offer, offer something, yeah, different. Yeah, um, whether I could afford it or not is another, <laughs> another thing. <laughs> Sorry, well, but you, I did, I, I hijacked your question. No, no. I, I guess I was saying that just as a summary point. I remember this project we worked on that had this internal courtyard, and I was forever saying, "Yeah, but Nicole." we've got Northern light into a South facing property. Like, isn't that incredible? Can't we sell that? Can't we pitch that? And I almost drummed it so hard that I think there were times you, you wouldn't answer my calls or respond to my email because <laughs> I was so proud of it. And the thing that was interesting, Nicole, you're talking about other responses, other alternatives. There are examples of that, that procurement model that you've mentioned on this street where we, we uh, work together. And what I didn't appreciate, because initially when we came up with this concept, it was almost like my colleague and I that we worked with, we thought it was somewhat of an obvious response, but no one else on the street has has done it. And yeah. I remember a really exciting moment when we lodged it and he said, I think it's a really interesting approach and I hope we get to do it often like on an urban planning model or urban yeah. plan level, it was an interesting response. And I think that's something I just want to conclude on, Nicole, that the design team, like you're coming from the perspective of town planning, I'm coming from the perspective of architecture and we're working together to create this synergy so as to put something forward to the assessment team that we're proud of, that we've worked through, that we've challenged and tested, so as that at the other end, they just say, great, let's go. And I think that's something all our listeners should maybe take into consideration. Like there's other town planners other than Nicole out there, yeah. um, but that's the benefit of that experience. Is there anything else, Nicole, you want to say in, in closing? No, just thank, thank you for having me and, and um, making me reflect on why I became a town planner and, <laughs> and where did planning come from and why do we need to put in a DA? Um, I think I like I enjoy I actually really enjoy planning um I enjoy um having like a basic knowledge of architecture and a basic knowledge of um all the other facets like stormwater and engineering and and landscape architecture and traffic engineering I, I I like um having enough information to to understand all those pieces and then try and put it together and I do I do really like um, helping people. I do believe that if you own um, a block of land, I'm thinking domestically now for, for you know, mums and dads and people and partners and who own land and want to do something with their little piece of magic, I, I want to help 
um, make that happen. And I do, um, the, the process is difficult and it can take um, a long time. And I think it is very worthwhile getting getting uh, a team together and um, trying to make it um, as smooth as possible and, you know, get the outcome that the client wants as, wants as quickly as possible and, um, you know, try and keep neighbours happy because you've got to live with them for however long they decide to stay there too. Well, that's a great way to um, sum up, Nicole. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Uh, where can people find you, Nicole? The website has contact details. Planic. Yeah, that does. Just planic, P-L-A-N-I-K dot com dot A-U. Okay, we'll put that in the show notes. So anyone that wants to reach out to get planning advice from Nicole, uh, who has now been truly th put through a, a trial by fire with many architects, even before me, challenging Nicole and, and sort of stretching the friendship on some respects as to, yeah, but Nicole, if we argue this, we can, we can get it in. We certainly had many of those moments and I've appreciated that experience and really appreciate everything that you contribute and appreciate your time today, Nicole. Thank you so much. Thanks, Michael. And all the best with your podcast. Okay, that's a wrap. Thank you once again to Nicole for taking the time out of your day to contribute. Nicole is a very busy individual and it was very special to have that opportunity to talk to her about planning matters as of August 2022. If you want to reach out to Nicole to get further planning advice specific to your project with your design team, her website is planic.com.au. And if Nicole can't service your needs for whatever reason, I'm sure she'll refer you to someone else. There are lots of town planners out there that all contribute the way that Nicole does. In conclusion, I wanted to just read out this sentence on Nicole's website that speaks volumes as to how Nicole approaches town planning consultancy. It says, straightforward and realistic town planning advice delivered by a town planner who understands business. I think that's such a great quote to end on. Okay, if you thought this episode was useful, please share it with colleagues, relatives, neighbors, and the like. It really does help us or hit subscribe. Until next time, thank you. You've been listening to What Is and What Could Be with Michael Clark Architect.